Amen. Well, good morning, church family. Uh, we are going to continue along in our study of 2 Timothy, the leadership baton. So you can open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll be picking up at verse 8. Uh, last week I had intended to preach verses 1 through 13. That didn't quite work out. There was just too much to deal with in one time. So we're going to pick up on the second half, verse 8 to 13. And let me read that to you. The text reads, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. Well, people think that if they say, I believe, that it does something. Uh, they, they think that if they really, 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 really believe something, that it actually does something in the wor real world. And we've seen this in a lot of different ways, but one of the classic examples is that person seeking fame and stardom through American Idol or any one of those talent searches, right? You have this person who can't hit the broadside of a barn with a note, and they come to American Idol and they say, I believe in myself. I know that I have this latent capacity and talent, and, and I'm just waiting to be discovered. And then that person hits the iron wall called Simon Cowell. And it's kind of like driving past the scene of a wreck. You just can't look away. Now, Paul says to Timothy that there is more to belief than really, really wishing for something to be true. Do you remember what he said last week in verse 7? He said to him, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, let me ask you this morning, did you do that? Have you been thinking about those metaphors, the artesian well, the perpetual trainer, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer? If, if we take in the Word of God and we walk away and think nothing more of it, just as if I was reading a news article or anything else, we're just simply nodding with agreement, but we have to do more than that. You see, saying I believe means very little. It is the foundation of belief that gives any validity to that belief. So it's not a question of whether do you believe. The question is, what do you believe? And is there any basis for that belief? Like, as we're looking at what Paul's saying to Timothy this morning, is there a basis for this gospel message? Is it really true? And if that's the case, then we have to ask the question, is it worth living for and dying for? Well, to get to yes to that question, I want to challenge each of you as a believer that we have to do a better job of loving God with our mind. 
Do you remember what the greatest commandment says? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. Your mind. You can't have one without the other. I can't love God well if I hold to sloppy beliefs and sloppy values that have no basis in the biblical text. In fact, if I want to become a good baton passer, Scripture tells me that I actually have to become like a a greedy miser for the truth. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 2. He said, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, then you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now that is an important text in the day and age when we are questioning the truth of everything. I mean, think about any major topic that's out there right now. Go on social media, go on YouTube, and you will hear someone adamantly declaring truth about that subject, and they're coming from all different angles. We hear words like misinformation. We hear words like, that's true, that's false. But now the question is, what really is true and what is really false? Well, the Bible tells us, that if you want to know the difference, you must seek God. Because if God created truth, then he knows what is true. So if you want real knowledge, if you want real truth, you come to those things on God's terms. In this text this morning, Paul's going to show us that Jesus is at the center of all of this. But if I really want to know what's true and love God with my mind, then I have to learn to love Jesus by dwelling on glorious truths about Jesus that migrate from the mind down to my core, my heart. And Paul's main message to Timothy as he promotes this truth is keep Jesus at the center of it all. Look at verse 8, and you'll see that theme. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Now, is he saying that to Timothy because he is fearful that somehow Timothy is going to develop amnesia and forget who he is and forget who Paul is and forget all the truths about Jesus? I don't think so. Paul said throughout this text, you're well acquainted with the Scriptures and you've come along with me on these missionary journeys. And if there's anything that Paul did, it was talk about the truths of Jesus a lot. So he wasn't fearful that Timothy might forget the facts. But he does know this about the human memory. It can be notoriously fickle. I can know something with my mind, but forget its significance and depths with my life. I can get to a place where I could regurgitate facts about Jesus without feeling any affection or allegiance to the one to whom those facts point. That's what Paul's telling us this morning. You see, the church is constantly in danger of forgetting Jesus even while the church talks about Jesus and preaches Jesus. Now, John Stott talks about this happening in insidious ways, and he gives three examples of how this can happen within the church. The first example is that there's a tendency within the church for the church to absorb itself in barren theological debate, meaning 
that we become pedantic with particular theological matters while wholly missing what matters, okay? This is getting so details-focused on the theology that you miss the big picture, the one to whom the theology points. The Pharisees did this. Jesus accused them of this in Matthew 23, 23. He says, you tithe all the way down to your spices. Like, you really understand this tithing thing. But here's the deal. You miss the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. Now, how can I do that as a believer? Well, I can get so stuck on studying theology that I forget to love the God to whom the theology points. Now, Stott also says that the church can forget Jesus when it becomes purely humanitarian. We get so focused on doing the good works of the church that, again, we forget that we're doing it on behalf of someone, of Jesus. Now, think about that for ourselves as we are pursuing this vision, right, of transformative leadership, and we're exploring how can we be more involved in the community. We must not, as we go down this road, simply serve people for the sake of making ourselves feel good. No, as I'm serving the community, I'm extending a cold glass of water to the thirsty in the name of Jesus. I'm doing it because I love Him. Here's one more. Stott says that the church becomes fixated on its own petty or parochial business, which means we've become a holy huddle, an insider organization, a self-focused church, where we care more about coming together to vote on the carpet color than we do about discussing how are we going to reach people who don't know Jesus. Now, how do we combat the risk of forgetting Jesus? Well, Scripture time and again says, develop your mind and develop your heart. Remember him. Think often of him. And, and, and one of the ways that we do this is we must hold to and understand and know a robust Christology. Christology simply means the study of the person and the work of Jesus, who he was and what he did. That's what Paul's telling us right here, isn't it? He's, he's saying it all really in that statement. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Now, he's telling us two important things about the person of Jesus. The first is the humanity of Jesus. He's the descendant of David. That means that he was flesh and blood. He was a real person. And you can't lose that in your Christology. I can develop this for you in the Scriptures. We could go all the way back to Genesis 3, where God promises that there would be a descendant of Eve. We make our way all the way through the Old Testament, and we trace it right down to the person of Jesus. In fact, I've spent many Christmas messages going through the genealogy of Matthew and Luke to prove to you that Jesus was from the line of David. He was fully human. He was the Word become flesh. Now, the other side of the coin, of course, is that phrase, risen from the dead, which implies the divinity of Jesus. You see, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus was powerfully designated and validated as God's Son 
when he was raised from the dead. So remember these truths. Think deeply about them, the scriptures are saying. Don't just say, I believe. Don't just show up to church like one of those starry-eyed contestants on American Idol that are pursuing their dream, but really ground yourself in the truth, the substance of what we believe. Jesus rose from the dead. He's the descendant of David. I want to offer just or issue two warnings as we think about this, okay? The first one is when it comes to your thought life, okay, don't get stuck on that microwave time mentality. You remember we were talking about that last week? We live in microwave time culture. We want everything yesterday to happen. When it comes to grounding yourself in truth, do you think that you're going to absorb everything that the Bible has to say in a week? Of course not. So if you're coming into the faith and you're just learning things, that's great. Take your time. you got to take a small bite at the apple every day if you want to consume the whole thing. You can't do that in one sitting or you will get a stomach ache, okay? So read your Bible. Read good theological books. And if you're asking yourself, well, what kind of good theological books should I be reading? Email me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. Get into relationships with strong believers. Now, here's the other warning that I would like to issue, and it's this, that simply trying to attain knowledge or put facts into your head is also a danger if you don't connect it to the heart. I love what these two authors say as they're talking about leadership development. They say, heads filled with information without Hearts transformed by the grace of God is a horrific combination in the realm of leadership development. As King Saul continued ruling, surely his head was filled with more and more knowledge of how to direct people and administer his kingdom, but his heart wandered more and more from the one who ultimately made him king. So here's what the truth can do in your life. The truth can create a powerful alliance between your mind and your heart. That's what you need it to do. So when I uh, have this alliance occur, something really awesome happens. And here's what it is. Your mind, as it believes that the truth is true, becomes convinced. And that becomes your worldview. And then that migrates down to the heart. And the heart then gladly offers itself for the sake of that purpose. Now, what happens when there's a disconnect between the two? Well, when there's a disconnect, I know that something's true, but my heart wants to pursue some other passion. And so there is a big disconnect because I say that I believe Jesus is real, but I don't live like he is real. Now, Paul had made that powerful alliance in his life. Listen to what he says in verse 9 and 10. He says, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal for the gospel. That's an alliance right there, right? If I'm willing to suffer for something, it, be- it means that I believe that it's true and I'm pursuing it with my heart. So he's suffering for the gospel, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice that the truth 
strengthen Paul even as he suffered. No one wants to suffer. But it's one thing to just suffer. And it's another thing to suffer for the truth. While suffering is never enjoyable, there can be great purpose in suffering for what I know is right and good and worthy. So in the case of Paul, he may be physically locked down in chains, but his spirit runs free outside of that imprisonment because he knows in whom he has believed. He has a confidence in Jesus Christ. And he also has the confidence that if Jesus is Lord, that his work will never suffer, really. That God doesn't need him. I love how he says in the text, the word of God is not bound. Uh, One commentator says it like this, God buries his workers but continues his work. God's not constrained. I I just was reminded this again this past week as I was reading. Uh, From your history books, you might remember that in the 1930s, Stalin and his regime placed a ban on Bibles and on believers. Now, one of the towns in Russia, Stavropol, that took this very seriously, they carried it out with a vengeance. They were collecting thousands of Bibles and putting multitudes of believers in the gulag, and many of those believers died because they were, quote-unquote, enemies of the state. Now, after the fall of communism, a Christian ministry co-mission went in, and they were doing ministry in Stavropol. They, they didn't really understand the history of the city, so they had made a connection with getting Bibles from Moscow and then taking them down south to Stavropol. But the distribution of the Bibles, at some point, the supply chain fell apart, and so they had heard from some of the local people that there was a warehouse outside of the city where many of the Bibles from Stalin's time had been stored. So as they were praying about it, one of the believers developed some courage and they decided that they would go to the officials of the warehouse and they would ask if the Bibles were still there. Turns out they were. And then, feeling emboldened, this believer said, well, can we take those Bibles and distribute them to the people of Stavropol? And again, the official said, sure, why not? And so they got a truck And then they gathered several of the local people, and they started getting these Bibles into this truck to take them out to people. Well, one of the helpers was a young man. He was a skeptical, hostile, agnostic collegian, and he was only there for the day's wage. As they were going about the work, they noticed that this young man had disappeared. So they began looking for him, and they found him in the corner of the warehouse, weeping. See, somewhere along the way in the day, he had decided that he was kind of getting tired of this, and he was just going to take one of those Bibles. They were a hot commodity. People really didn't have these, and he would make off with it. As he was doing that, he opened up his Bible that he had stolen, and in the front page, in in her handwriting, was the name of his grandmother. I'll get this. She had had her personal Bible stolen from her. He stole it, and it came back to him. Now, do you think that that grandmother 
had not prayed over the years that her grandson would come to know the word of God and that the people of Stavropol would once again be able to read the Bible? Of course she had. You see, church, here's the truth. God's word can no more be chained than God himself. Now, as you take that in, I hope that you understand that as a reassuring message. It's reassuring, number one, because we know that as we go about the work that God is in control. But it's also reassuring because I know that the results of the work do not rest with my performance, with my abilities. The only thing that Jesus asks of me is that I would be faithful to him, that I would love him with my mind and with my heart, and then that I would also love other people by telling them the truth about Jesus. But he's not like some corporation or company that wants me to meet quotas or get certain revenues in order to maintain my employment, keeping tabs on me in that sort of way. The only thing he wants from me is faithfulness. Now, in the next couple of verses, verses 11 to 14, Paul is going to communicate that message to us through four epigraphs. Now, those are just pithy statements. And you know the purpose of a pithy statement. It's, it's meant to be something that kind of sticks with you when you hear it. Like the, the, the statement, don't sweat the small stuff, right? We've all heard that. And, and when we hear it, we say to ourselves, you know, that rings true. I'm sitting here just, you know, getting all tied up in knots over all the details of life, and I need to just settle down a little bit and stop sweating the small stuff. Or here's another one that I really appreciate. This one was written uh, by Oscar Wilde. He said, I can do everything except resist temptation. Now, isn't that a true statement of today? So the first two pithy statements that Paul gives us talk to us about the reward for faithfulness. He says, first, if we have denied him, or if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So church, listen to this. Jesus knows and expects that we can and should be faithful. Let me say that one more time. He knows and expects that we can and should be faithful. He does not come to you, the believer, with the soft bigotry of low expectations. He doesn't say of you, oh, I don't think they're going to live up to my standards, so I'm not even going to try to give them a standard. Now, why does he not do that? Because he knows the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And he knows that this Holy Spirit transforms hearts and produces lives of faithfulness as a result. So his expectations are not low, they're extremely high. We saw that in Mark 8, 48, when he was speaking to his disciples and then by extension us. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So that's a high expectation, isn't it? This is not a, a Jesus who promotes some kind of easy believism or 
cheap grace where he says to us, you know, just as long as you're willing to come to me, I will just accommodate any value system that you have, any way you want to live. I'm fine with that. No, he doesn't say that at all. Now, he believes in grace. Jesus promotes grace. But he also intends to be our Lord. And as Lord, he expects faithfulness from his people. Well, Paul knew this about Jesus' expectations, and so he preached a gospel that had high expectations. As you look at the, the, the book of Romans, for example, chapter 6, he, he's asking this question which he is going to answer, and he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, guys, that's cheap grace mentality. That's the kind of thought process that says, I just need to kind of come to Jesus and believe in him so that I'll be all set for the afterlife, but then I can do anything else I want. And here's the thing. Paul says that kind of grace doesn't exist. That kind of grace doesn't work in God's economy. No, the kind of grace that Jesus comes to us with is a transformative grace. Do you know what that means? You may come to Jesus with tons of struggles, and there's this unlimited reservoir of grace where as I come to him, he takes me as I am. But if I come to him, don't expect to stay as you are. He will change you. He will work in your heart. And that's what Paul says in the next couple of verses. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, what, walk in newness of life. That's why church baptism is more than just a sentimental moment in your faith journey. It's more than just a box that you check along the way. It's more than just a memory maker that we have at Dallas's Beach at Osterville Baptist night, uh, Church beach nights, right? It's more than that. When you were being baptized, here's what you were declaring. You were saying to the world, I'm all in. I completely and fully align with the life and death of Jesus. I intend to live for him I intend to die with him. Now, I know the struggle with full surrender because it requires much from us. It will require your priorities, your allegiance, your resources, your comfort, your security, your reputation. And if you're going to fully follow Jesus, you're going to have to entrust all of those areas of your life to his care and his control. You can't manage those things. You've got to hand them over to him. And I know that's hard. That's not easy. But just remember this. Nothing that is worthwhile is ever easy. So now we have to ask the question, is surrendering my life to Jesus worthwhile? What does Paul say in that next statement? If we endure, we will also reign with him. 
You see, the moment of struggle, the moment of surrender in this life is but temporary, and that's in comparison to an eternal weight of glory that Paul talks about. So we're making this exchange where we say, I'm willing to surrender myself to you, Jesus, because I know that there's this eternal heavenly glory that awaits me if I do that. Now, we might be thinking to ourselves, well, how do I know that's true? You know, it's like that hardworking farmer we talked about last week. He's plowing and he's putting seed in the ground and he's sweating at the brow all of this time just to wait for the fruit at the end of the harvest. So how do I know that the fruit's coming? Well, Paul answers that question in Romans 6.3. He says, Christ was raised from the dead. So here's the logic. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be raised from the dead. He was the first fruit. He was the proof that we too will get that eternal weight of glory. Now, I know that when we hear that in the Christian message, it's like, okay, they keep going on about this resurrection thing. I mean, what? why do we keep talking about this over and over again? Well, let me just ask you a question. Has anyone else in human history defeated death? I mean, the scientific experts today, have they created some kind of solution to where death is no longer a thing? Has uh, the thought leaders done that? Have the influencers, the inspirers, the, the, the leaders, the political figures, has anyone conquered death up to this point? So the answer is, if Jesus could do that, then he must be a big deal. In fact, the whole faith hinges on the veracity of the resurrection. Tim Keller says it like this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? Now there's where it comes down to belief. The foundation of what you believe matters. Now let's look at the opposite side of the coin. What if I try to hedge my bets and say, ah, you know, I'll kind of have one foot in and one foot out. I'll somewhat follow Jesus and then most of the time do things my way. Well, then here's two more statements that Paul gives us. The dangers. He says, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 to 33. He said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, church, the Holy Spirit who dwells in the believer has two really big jobs. First big job is he shines the spotlight on the human heart to see, savor, know, and love Jesus. That's his number one job. The second job is that he takes us through this life all the way from start to finish, and he preserves us. He holds us in the faith. So the question is, if someone has fully and finally denied Jesus, can the Spirit of God be in that person? And the answer is, of course not. Because he has two big jobs to do, and he always does his job. But does that mean that a person or a Christian will never fail? 
I think we can all say, of course, Christians fail at times. We know the story of Peter, who denied Christ three times. Peter, I mean, his denial was public. It was forceful. It was an absolute betrayal of Jesus. But if he had the Spirit of God in him, even in that moment of faithfulness or faithlessness, the Spirit of God proved faithful in Peter's life to restore him or bring him back. And I love that story because the restoration of Peter is such a beautiful moment in the Gospel of John. In that scene, Jesus comes to Peter again and he restores him by reasserting his expectations. And there's two big expectations. The first comes through this question. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he goes on to repeat that question two more times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Almost to the point where Peter starts feeling hurt. Like, how could you keep asking me that question? But Jesus' big idea is this. To love Jesus is of first priority. Do you love Jesus? If you've walked away from Him for some time and you're coming back to the faith, maybe it's even been in the last year through this pandemic, you've gotten distracted. Of first priority, the biggest question that you have to be asking yourself is, do I love Jesus? Now the second expectation were commands. He said to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Feed my sheep. So first priority, he wants you to love him. And then second priority, he wants you to love his people. To serve them. To give your life for them. And to tell people who don't know about Jesus that they need to love Jesus. It's all with our mission statement. It's, it's worship. I start there. I love God from my heart. Then I go through transformation. But then it doesn't stop at transformation. I have to get into mission because Jesus wants me to tell others about him so that they can become worshipers and be transformed and get on mission. Church, is Jesus worthy of your life. That's what this all boils down to. Well, let's think about who he is. He is the Word made flesh. He stepped out of eternity in his position of power from the Godhead to come to your rescue. He's also the divine Son of God. Scripture tells us that everything that we see, the entire universe was made for him and through him. You know what that means? It means that everything you see came into existence, creato ex nihilo. It means that Jesus spoke, and because of the generative power of his words, everything came into existence. He's also the conquering hero. He defeated sin and Satan. He has put the nail in the coffin on death, and he has brought us into life. He's also a personal Savior. Hear these words that he said so long ago as words that are meant for you too. He said, are not to spare arrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He's so intimately informed in your life. He's both 
kingly and kind. He is righteous and merciful. He is the lion and the lamb. He is Lord and He is Savior. So the question that you have to ask yourself as you think on these things is, is He worthy of my life? Well, what does your mind tell you as you hear the truth? And does your heart love what the mind is telling you? Is there a powerful alliance being created right now where you're saying, you know what? I am convinced. For some of us, we haven't put our faith in Jesus, and that's where it all begins. And maybe today the Holy Spirit is for the first time creating that powerful alliance between your mind and your heart where you're saying, yes, I need to put my faith in Him. I need to walk with Him. I need to make my life about Him. Friend, I want to encourage you that if that's happening right now in your mind, in your heart, to trust Him. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So actually, I want to invite you to do that right now in a moment of prayer. If you're sitting here in this room or in the multi-purpose room or watching online, pray along with me if you've never trusted Jesus and you would like to do that. Would you bow your heads? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how. I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen. Well, listen, friend, if you have put your faith in Jesus this morning, this is just the start of your spiritual journey. And uh, the way you continue along is, one, keep coming back to church and sitting under the Word of God, but then two, you have to get involved in the purpose of the local church. And the purpose of the local church is that we are a family, and we have like this as our job description. We help each other grow, and we equip one another to do what Jesus called us to do. So if you would like to learn more about how you can grow, contact the office, info at ostervillebaptist.org, and we, will, we would love to reach out and, and share more with how you can continue along in the life of faith.